0: take your Bibles and turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. It's the book that's all the way in the the very last book in your Bible, so very simple to to find. Just turn to the back and you'll be close. So this morning's message is a message that um, has been brewing for a long time now. Um, and, uh, but I wasn't really sure when, when to launch it. When, when do you preach a message like what we have this morning? Um, um, it was Rick's message last week that really was the, the impetus to say, okay, yes, this next Sunday is the right time. Speaking about, um, the Epaphroditus and, um, and Timothy, um, as examples and really thinking about what shapes us. You know, we've been through a pretty unique period in history. And how has the last 24, even 24 to 36 months, shaped us? Shaped us? Made us more like Jesus Christ. There are, there are a number of things that are shaping people, and we've seen the growth as well as we've seen the fallout. And so this message this morning is really about okay, how do we, shape one another? How does the Word of God shape us? Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Um, So we're going to cover a lot of the scriptures. Um, What I'm going to to preach on and what I want to demonstrate from God's Word, which is the authority, the only authority for faith and practice, um, is very clear, but it's also complex. Um, So I'm going to err on the side of simplicity, rather than showing all my work and entering into complexity right so here's here is the when to err on the side of simplicity and clarity in covering this amount of scripture um, means that that you won't see all the work it's there and I hope that it generates conversations within the congregation um, that you will have conversations with myself and I'd be glad to like slow down in maybe some of those personal conversations and show some of the work. Um, Otherwise, people may leave here saying, wow, that was just complex. I don't really know what he was saying. Um, I'd rather have you know what I was saying and go, I wonder if he was right, or is that his opinion uh, on that? I hope that you will see this is not my opinion. This is the word of God. So you've noticed, perhaps even in the last couple of weeks, that we are doing some things in our service that perhaps feel a bit more formal. Right? So we're introducing singing, That's just not a new thing, the, the um, what was it that we just sang? My mind just went, thank you, the doxology. See, you know this better than I. I'm going to sit down. The doxology, we sang the doxology. We're, we're reading a confession. We're doing those kinds. Of, they might feel more formal. Our goal is not formality. Um, m- more often than not, I wear business attire or even a suit. This morning, I, I, I look like Ben and I are going to go out and cut wood, right? I, d- I wore jeans and a sweater on purpose and a flannel on purpose because I want you to know that what we're, n- we're not after formality. Formality is not the goal. Formation is the goal. Tell your neighbor formation is the goal. Tell them. Okay, you did that at home too. I'm, I'm watching you. Good. Formation is the goal, it's not formality. I don't want people leaving here saying, I wonder if he's coming back wearing a robe next week. Right? That's, not, that's not at all where we're going as a church. So We can put those things aside right away. What we want to do is, we, we, our desire is to build stronger connections. A stronger connection to God, that's what formation is. It's becoming more like Christ. A stronger connection to God, a stronger connection together... To God means that that we are becoming the the bride of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. It's incarnational ministry. We want to look at what forms us. And as we look back over history, there are certain things that we are given. We don't need to invent things. We don't need to get creative. What we need to do is follow God's word. That's what we need to do. That's the goal. The goal is formation. The goal isn't formal liturgy per se. The goal is what are we doing to each other, and what does the Bible say? So, in order to do that, we have to look at man. And so, this is described as so we look at look at man. We look at God. We look at man. Um, our our um, pastors that have come before us say you can start in two places. You can start with with knowledge of self or you can start with knowledge of god but either way you need both and so we're going to start with knowledge of who man is a man is not primarily a thinking being look at the scriptures cognition is important but man is primarily a loving being and so when we we go to genesis chapter 1 stay in revelation 2 when we go to genesis chapter 1 and 2 what we find out is that man is this kind of loving, desiring being. and We have to ask the question, this is where this message goes. How does love form inside of us? How does love form inside of us? What we see in Genesis that we are, litur- we are um, liturgical creatures even before we are biological creatures described in Genesis 1 and 2. Think about that. God described us as liturgical creatures, worshiped, formed, worshiped, shaped creatures as our primary identity, even more primary than whether or not you're a man or a woman. Liturgy comes before that in God's word. Um, Liturgy, I believe, forms love. I believe that the, the word of God teaches us that liturgy forms love because the basic question it's actually one of the first questions that Jesus himself asks in John chapter 1 verse 38 is what do you want that's a good question what is it that you really want what you really want what you Okay. you're thinking the same what is it that you want it's the foundational question but yet we're influenced by other kinds of liturgy we're influenced by other kinds of thinking. Um, man, the modern man is, is influenced by Rene Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. Well, we are cognitive beings. That's a part of us. But that is not foundational to who we are. I worship, therefore, I am. We love what we love because our habits or our liturgy. The liturgy of Monday through Sunday shapes our desire. Love-shaping practices are liturgies. That's what a liturgy is. A liturgy is a love-shaping practice. It works in reverse. Think about the dynamics of temptation. Temptation is a liturgy. Read the book of James. It's a liturgy. It is a love-shaping practice in reverse. It's an unraveling of humanity rather than a redemption or recreation or exaltation of God's good creation. So love-shaped practices are liturgies. So who's responsible for what happens here? Well, look at Revelation chapter 2. We could actually cover Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, but notice um, in your Bible that it says... To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, this is Revelation 2, 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduringly, enduring patiently and bearing up, For my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from the place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." Well, there's a pattern that I want you to notice even before we look at a few things about the church at Ephesus. It says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, and then you go down to Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right, And then then Pergamum, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, the words to him who has a sharp two-edged sword. To the angel of the church at Thyatira. And on and on it goes. Who is this angel? Who's the angel of the church? Where else in scripture do we have angels in the church? Does Northbridge have a guardian angel who's doing these things? And now God is saying, to the angel of the church at Northbridge. All right? Well, these are not angels as we think of um, heavenly beings that it's referring to. But rather, it's referring to a pattern that we see... In a priestly office and the work of angels, which is to guard. It is a pastor's responsibility to guard. And here we even see, see so the angels in this, he's writing to our pastors. Pastors are responsible for the liturgy. And he says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, and here we have a particular church, and he says he's got a number of things that as God comes, he says, I know what you've done, your endurance, and, and, and you've, you've borne up with those who are evil, and you've been tested, and, and, and you're doing these things, but you have left your first love. Now, notice what God says. He doesn't say, now I want you to think about this. Be cognitive of this. What does he say? What's the solution in this particular passage? You've stopped doing the things you you've once done, right? So, in other words, one of our members says this. He says uh, you know, something along the lines. I'll mess up his quote, but he says, "Make your body, and your heart will follow. Right? Take your take. You walk your body there, and your heart will follow." He's saying you you stop doing certain things, and because of that, your heart has not followed. You've you've lost your love. There's a connection between the things that we do um, and the things that we love. And here, what, what's the, what is the reward or the punishment here? There's, notice that God has reward or punishment. You can eat of the tree of life, or if you don't, what's going to happen? He's going to remove your witness. All right, so over and over again, we see here in Revelation 2 that... These messengers, these angels, these pastors um, are responsible for the spiritual formation of the congregation. And and so, so God has given them the authority and he's also calling them into account for what they're doing in those congregations. And so we see that over and over again. It's really interesting. At the end of Revelation, we see Revelation 21, 12. You don't have to turn there. But we see angels also guarding, guarding the gates, 12 gates of the holy city. There's these angels that, that are representative of the apostles um, that are guarding the gates. We also see, if we, and we're going to go to Genesis, so flip to the first book of the Bible. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that after Adam and Eve sin, the gate back into the, the Garden of Eden, or the center of the Garden of Eden, is blocked by an angel with a flaming sword. And so there is this connection between angels and pastors and liturgy and what pastors do to function. Um, and we, I want you to see this not just simply from Revelation 2, but this is a pattern that occurs over and over and over again um, in the Bible. So you look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And so it says here in Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So, and then says God blessed them and said to them, so here we have an order that that we need to pay attention to. Um, The order is God creates mankind and he tells in this accounting of Genesis the function of mankind. Man is created, and he's created how? In the image of God. There's a role. It's a liturgical role. It's it's a man is shaped, right? So humanity is shaped. And this in particular here, it's speaking of Adam. Adam as a man is shaped. Now, we'll get to Eve. Don't, don't think we're leaving you out, ladies. Um, he's shaped in a way that is to reflect who God is. Right? So... Man has a mind, a will, an emotion, but primarily is, is to reflect the community of God. His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in community, in eternal love. That's how Adam was shaped. And then God here, as the scriptures record, that the word of God is laid down on purpose. And so we're seeing this Genesis 1 account. And then a retelling in chapter 2, but it's laid down on purpose in a particular way. In in verse 28, we see Adam given the the dominion command. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant, Yielding seed on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed, you shall have them for food. And, and every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has breath of life, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was good, and there was evening and morning, and it was the sixth day. And then the second chapter, you have an accounting of the creation of, Story, but first, what God wants to make clear in the first accounting is the fact that mankind, humanity, is liturgical in nature. So it, it, it's there's a spiritual function that is not separate from physical creation. Right. So Adam, as a human being, a living, breathing human being, in what he does and how he functions in that garden, is primarily. To image who God is. To tell of who God is. And um, that, that is Adam's primary function. His secondary function um, is one of dominion. He has two main tasks. Look at the second chapter in verse 15. Second chapter of Genesis in verse 15. It says this. God took man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it and then the lord god commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree in the garden but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die now is eve does eve exist up to this point yes or no class no she's not there So he's giving him instruction. He says he has two main responsibilities, work and keep, work and guard, right? Develop and to guard what God has given to him. It's really an interesting thing, right? Because this is a time of innocence. There isn't sin, but he's to keep it, guard it. And then you see the command, you can eat of all the trees except for this tree. Then what happens next? Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for that the man to be should be alone. Now there is a, there is a component to this that Eve was necessary for Adam to do his work, his job in the garden. In other words, the, the job of having dominion over the garden. If we said that first, that really belittles, I think, women. Right? It's like, well, you were created so Adam could do the work. And he needed a little help, because I've always said, he leaves his socks everywhere. Right? That's, that's actually demeaning. It's, it, there's, there's truth to that. There's truth that Adam alone could not function in a diminutive sense without Eve. But we have to be careful what, how we think of that and how we're informed biblically and how we're formed culturally when it comes to that. Uh, the Bible here, though, is teaching that it's the liturgical existence or the glory to God existence, the spiritual function within the, the spiritual function within flesh. I don't want to separ- I, w- I want to be very careful that I that I do not separate spiritual from physical. <coughs> so when I'm talking in these categories, I always mean they're always connected. Always, okay? Can I be more clear? Always, they're always connected. So the spiritual function of Adam, he could not worship God without Eve properly. Why? There's no community. Hence, there's no love. Right? So, so this this, I hope this like really opens up your mind as to the purpose of man and woman biologically, our first man and woman liturgically. Like, there's a spiritual shaping and a necessity that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Without that, without those categories, we cannot worship God. Okay? Secondarily, there is an economic creation, wisdom, diminutive function. Right? We can work that out um, and another message. But I want you to see that the primary function is a liturgical function. The two main tasks, though, are to guard. To guard and to keep. So the first main task is to keep or to guard. Um, we see that in verses 16 and 17. The second is to lead. So what we see is a pattern. We're thinking about these angels. We see as a pattern in Scripture this, I, that, that to guard is a priestly task. It's a priestly task. And where do we see angels? right? We see them in doing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, right? They are involved in worship, and so there's this connection, and, and the, the guarding, the keeping is a priestly task. The leading is a kingly task. Let me take these in reverse. Let's look at this kingly task of leading, having dominion, working the earth. It's a, it's a primarily a kingly task, and we see that, that, that function throughout Scripture, you see the kingly task is a a work of wisdom when we think about dominion it's wisdom it's like how does life work now this kingly task is a task that is that is dependent upon liturgy it's dependent upon faith cultivating the garden what we see of cultivating the garden was adam was naming the animals right he was naming the animals you think about naming the animals we have different names for animals that we look at biblical names biblical names describe what that was right so adam didn't go like giraffe right he didn't name it that way he'd be like long-necked horse right or something like that skinny leg long-necked horse right because you can you know we have the freedom to draw a giraffe but one of the things that you don't have the freedom to do is draw a short-necked giraffe because a short-necked giraffe is not a giraffe, right? It's, 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 he's describing what they were, but he was doing more than just describing, describing the world around us we call science, but he's doing more than describing the world. The kingly task is dependent upon faith or liturgy because the kingly task of wisdom, of science, is not only what is a giraffe, but what is its purpose, what is it there for? It's, it's dependent. So he had, God gives him this kingly task because you can't just describe life and be wise. You have to tell somebody how to live it. Right? If you're working in the widget factory and all you know are widgets and you do not have faith, hope, and love, you will be depressed and dysfunctional. But if you are in the widget factory and you know why you exist... In what you're doing there in that widget factory, whatever that is, and you have faith, hope, and love, it makes all the difference in the world. And so in Genesis 1, 28 through 30, we see him functioning in this um, in this particular way. In Genesis um 2, 16 and 17, there's instructions about eating. It's and the instructions about eating come before um this, this second time of giving. Um, the the diminutive task the task to have dominion to keep um, the or, um, to to cultivate the the garden Adam's primary task was liturgical and and his secondary task was dependent um, upon his understanding of who god is um, Science itself is is a liturgical science we will see this that it is absolutely dependent upon Faith, because science is discovering the ways of God. Now, where is then, who else names animals in the garden? Or who else names animals on the earth? We don't get to the completion of naming animals. Actually, I think that's still going on. Adam, see, he starts to name the animals. Um, He gets a wife, and then Genesis 3 happens, and what do they do? Adam fails. I'd say Adam failed in both of his tasks because who was given the instructions not to eat? Adam was. But what does Adam do? He fails, maybe not to just pass on the cognitive information to Eve because Eve had a lot of thoughts about that tree. Look, it's good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. It will make us wise. What Adam wanted was a happy wife, <laughs> but he did not get a happy life. We actually, so, so what happened is he falls. They're kicked out of the garden. Why? Because Adam actually fails to do what God's given to him, which was to guard. Guard what? Not just the garden, but to guard the word of God and obedience to God. He failed in his leadership capacity in that way. Um, I think, men, we kind of get this, right? As long as you have a wife that's headed in a Godward way, life's easy. I'll tell you that from experience. But when your family's kind of, th- the, the fault lines are, you know, and, and we've got things happening in our family, and a man has to stand up and say, no, we're going to obey God, and he needs to do that like Jesus, with courage and tenderness, not like a caveman, right? If he does that, it doesn't mean that things get better in his family, not at first. It actually may mean it gets more difficult. It's a hard job to do. But that's what Adam was called to. So we see the naming of animals again. We see it again, when, when we, but we have to go all the way to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10, we see Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man. We'll go to 1 Kings chapter 10. um, And there are, 1 Kings chapter 10, um, it records how all of these individuals are coming to Solomon. That he has wealth, that he has wisdom. And it records the, the queen of Sheba coming and he says, and it says verse 8: Happy are you men, happy are you servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> because the Lord, um, because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gives him all of this gold and all of these these things, but go back to, so you have this wise king, wise and wealthy king. Go back to um, chapter 4 of 1 Kings, chapter 4 of 1 Kings, and we see something happening um, in chapter 4 of 1 Kings, in verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and the wisdom of egypt for he was wiser than other men than ethan the Ezrahite. do you know who that is okay thank good answer thank you no i didn't either so i looked it up um he wrote psalm 88 and herman who's herman you know who herman is he wrote psalm 89 guess where we're going next week so preview in Calcol, and Darda, sons of Mahol, and his frame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of the trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of the beasts and all the birds and of reptiles and of fish and all the people and all. and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. What was Solomon doing? Was he like the thinker, you know, just spouting off Proverbs? He was doing science. He was was a scientist. He was fulfilling what Adam was called to do. Only Solomon had one problem. He, He... he, he cultivated the garden into this garden city that we see. And by the way, if you look at creation, what do you see? You see a garden that is a cosmic garden. The dimensions of the creation reflect the dimensions of the tabernacle and temple. And the tabernacle and temple reflect the, the dimensions and the shape of the garden city that we see in Revelation chapters 20 and 21. God is doing something. He's the divine author of all scripture. And he's doing something as he puts this, this whole um, volume of 66 books um, together. What we see here in Solomon is Solomon does this liturgical science and people marvel. He is, he's wise. What is he doing? He's putting how to live and creation together. He's doing spiritual formation. And that's why when we look at the world, we must say there is no natural law. We must not do natural theology. We cannot start from our reason alone and get to God. God must reveal himself to us. That's why I've been talking about in some of our communion exhortations, miracles. A miracle is when God does something differently than what he normally does. What we believe from God's word, starting at God's word, which which is the self-authenticating word of God, is that God personally runs things. So Christian science, not the cult, but when we do science as Christians. Christian science is based on God's word. We have to start at the wisdom of God. We know this. We won't turn there. But we know this from Genesis chapter 8, verses 22 through chapter 9, right at the beginning, verse 1. That God says, after the flood, I'm going to do things the same way, over and over and over again. And a miracle is, in that same way is based on the covenant, A miracle is when God takes exception to that and does it a different way. That's what a miracle is. So when we look at the flood and we say, well, you know, we have these layers and these layers happen because of water and and we had plants that got packed down and, you know, all we're doing is describing things. I think a better way is saying, you know what, what was happening during the flood, is that the angels were rearranging the earth for God because he knew that we would need petroleum to fuel our cars. He was providing for us. He was putting things in order. He was providing for us. It's, it's actually far better to speak about the liturgy, the wisdom first, before we do the, the, the science why that's there. It's a, it's a way of thinking that I think if we're, we're going to actually withstand the forces of the world, that we have to think biblically in this way. We've got to think about how, what God is doing, that miracles and providence are together. There is no natural law. That's why when you pray and you thank God for your food, you thank God for your food. You don't say, you know, Thank you, ASGRO, for your wonderful understanding of seed technology that yields, you know, crops. Or, I, I don't know, farmers are going to, like, correct my butchering of farming language. But you don't say that. Thank God, because what you have in front of you is a miracle. It's a miracle. There is no natural law. <clears throat> so what we see is that there is this kingly task, but there's also this priestly task was also this priestly task. Adam's job was to guard and to lead. Those were the two things that he was to do. His job, um, it was this priestly task. Now, if we, we look at what the priests do, it's very interesting. We can look at the, the priests. The priests were Levites. Um, and the Levites had two jobs. They worked in the, um, in the temple, in the tabernacle in temple. But they also had the job of guarding. That came from a particular place. Um, they actually had didn't have a great beginning. Um, th- they defended their sister, and it's really interesting, if you go back, their sister, um, there was a Canaanite man who took advantage of their sister. Jacob, their dad, said, okay, you know, this, this Canaanite came and said, hey, I want to make amends, I really do love your daughter, and, and the dad agreed, Jacob agreed, but then the two brothers, Simeon and, Le- and Levi, which— the Levites are where um, uh, the priests, those that serve in the temple, tabernacle and temple come from. They went and slaughtered, they killed this guy and his family. And because of that, Jacob said, you have no inheritance. However, when they came to another, they came to a place of worship at the mountain of God, at Mount Sinai, when Moses came down and, and, and all craziness was breaking loose, It was the Levites that stood with Moses and put order with their swords to the nation of Israel. And so it gives you a different idea of of the nature of a Levite. We think that, oh, you know, those are the guys that, you know, they don't get their fingernails dirty and they... No, these these were the security as well as the servants and they were to guard. And we see that um, through scripture. That's why there is this connection between what angels do in guarding and what priests do in guarding. They guard the treasure of God in the Holy of Holies that is there. And that continues to this day. What Adam did in the garden was he failed to guard and lead God's good creation, namely his wife. And just um, like God comes to the angels of the church of Revelation 2, so, Adam came to, so God comes to Adam in Genesis 3. Adam failed. Um, he was more concerned about his wife's happiness than her holiness. He failed to instruct her and to protect her. And what we see is that God, before he leaves, Jesus, before he leaves, gives us some instructions in the same way that God in the garden gave Adam instructions. a passage that is probably familiar to many of you. Um, It is Matthew 28. It says in verse 16 in Matthew 28, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to a mountain to worship Jesus, as Jesus had directed. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. What we see in this verse is something that we see, these verses is something that we see in all of Scripture. That the idea of how the church is formed, how God's people are formed, are based on three aspects. One is to communicate in- information. Jesus says you need to communicate information, but he also says in Matthew twenty-eight there are certain rituals or habits that you are to perform, baptizing in my name. It says that they knew of this because even when they saw Jesus, what do they do? What did they do? They worshipped him. There was a certain. Bodily function, action that they did to ascribe worship to Jesus. But there's also discipline. <coughs> Excuse me, there's discipline, as we saw earlier in scripture, there's there's reward and punishment. You saw that in Revelation 2. There's God functions, God teaches his people by using these three areas as a three um, a three areas bound together. So pedagogy of scripture is communicating information. it is liturgy, and it is discipline. What we have in the West, and the problem that we have with modern teaching is modern teaching is simply based on information. Give children the right information, but what does it do it, it doesn't have a, a a liturgy it doesn't have ritual it doesn't over and over and over again um, it, it doesn't I had a um, a teacher growing up i, I don 't think this happens today um, that would um, would actually make us call him sir in class. It was always, yes, sir. You know, and he would stop, and he would, if you said, yeah, he'd say, no, try that again. Yes, no, no, another time. And then he was like, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> it, it was this, and so that was part of the formation in that class. That was part of that expectation in liturgy. So it's, it's information, it's liturgy, it's discipline. Right? We tend to pick one of the three rather than living with all three in intention. Um, to illustrate this, God calls the, the people of God out of Egypt, to the Exodus. He calls them out to do what? He calls them to liturgy. He calls them to worship. Right? How much instruction does he give? Not very much. Not very much at all. Um, he does discipline when he comes to mount sinai before instruction is even given he says don't touch the mountain or what will happen you're going to die it's only then that he gives the law and instruction all three are there but they don't have to come in a certain order you see liturgy what liturgy does is it forms us it forms us um modern teaching leaves off uh, discipline it leaves off liturgy um, but it's not modern teaching that is guilty of this. We see in, in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox worship that there is high liturgy. Um, but there's very little information, very little teaching. Um, we see in Protestant worship, and this is perhaps where we're more guilty, that we reflect modern teaching in that it's highly informational. But it is not formational. All are needed. Knowing and doing or guarding and dominion that that two tasks are are needed um together um neither is prior neither one neither one of adam's tasks neither one of um the elements of pedagogy are prior to the other they knowing forms the context for doing and doing forms the context for knowing but all are based on faith that is key all are a submission to god the fall was not because of a lack of knowing The fall was not actually because of a lack of doing or because of a doing. It was a lack of faith. Adam and Eve fell because they did not believe God's word. They did not have faith in God's word. So liturgy is the context for teaching and vice versa, but all are based on faith. Faith is a submission to God. Faith means that our minds don't wander. Faith is personal engagement. It means paying attention and not sleeping. It's this engagement in knowing and doing. So these priestly and kingly responsibilities are inseparable and all are needed in faith. Um, Roman Catholic theology stresses works. You work, you do, and that's how you get to salvation. Oftentimes, wrongly, Protestant worship Stresses right knowledge, guarding right knowledge to salvation. It's doing one without the other that, that is wrong. Both worship forms tend to miss the primacy of faith and the need for each other. You think about the thief on the cross. There's a great YouTube clip of Alistair Begg when he talks about the thief of the cross. The thief of the cross arrives in heaven, and the angel says at the gate, says, How'd you get here? I don't know. He says, the, I was on this cross, and the angel said, well, you were, you were mocking him? And he's like, I, I don't know. The guy on the middle cross said I could come here, and I believed him. And Alistair says, I'll send you the, he says, well, I need to go get my supervising angel. And he's like, the supervising angel shows up and says, okay, look, tell me about your understanding of justification by faith. I don't know anything about it we talked about this yesterday um, in men's prayer in acts 4 where the guy's beggar he's begging at the gate peter and john say silver and gold have i none but what i have i give to you in the name of jesus arise and walk you know i'm sure those first few moments the guy was like that's not what i asked for the, the implication there is that he became a believer. Where, where did the knowledge come? Right? So, I mean, these, this is, these are complex things. It's not that knowledge is unimportant. It is. The Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox emphasize doing without knowing. What happens in a system where you're doing without knowing is false teaching arises. Um, liturgy and good works then end up becoming corrupt. Even though there, there is a strong influence on culture through works and through charity, um, it ends up being no good. I think what we've learned in this COVID, or what I'm calling sort of a Gideon moment, if you understand the biblical reference, in Protestant worship, we emphasize knowing without doing, instruction without action, and here is the fallout. There's a vacuum of liturgy, in other words, the liturgy is as long as you preach the gospel, anything else goes. The problem with that is false liturgy arises. What happens then are people, are, we're forming people and not realizing that we're, that information is not the primary developer of love. It's important and it's necessary. But a false liturgy arises, a new liturgy arises that is informed by sentimentality. More than anything, work good works are minimized. People are oftentimes too busy and too burdened to do God's work. There's a disconnection or an overdependence. This is one of the the pitfalls. There's a disconnection or an overdependence on politics because there's a lack of faith, hope, and love. Right? There's either an overdependence. Or, or there is um, a disconnection. I don't really care. Spiritual is important, so I don't care what happens out there. It's all going to burn anyway. Right? That's a disconnection. Or there's an overdependence. I got to have my guy or my gal in the right office. Right? The work of God is going to be the work of God. Regardless, because. There's this disconnection because there's no faith, hope, or love as primary. There's also an ignorance of the Old Testament law, which leads to a lack of a sense of holiness, um, which leads to an invention of a new kind of holiness. So um, this idea of no law, and Jesus saved me, he's fulfilled the law, so therefore there's no law, we call that antinomianism. The saved are unbound, they're not bound to follow God's law. That is utterly false. So what happens in Protestant liturgy the formation is antinomianism or legalism. because we are worshiping creatures primarily we end up with this this desire to be holy and so there's new rituals. The altar call has become the altar call in the in that time has become the substitute ritual and so we have altar call theology which is predominantly um, plagian or or Descardian so plagian is just simply a Pelagius said, um, he was like Cain. He said, like, I can exercise my will, I can do this, and God's got to accept it. God's saying, no, that's not what I asked for. Just because you decide doesn't mean that God has to accept it, or I think this way. Therefore, God has to accept me. No, what, what transformation is dependent upon is faith in what God says, not me. Not I, it's God. So good works oftentimes become not something external, um, not practices that happen Monday through Saturday that are informed by the word of God and the people of God on Sunday, but good works become internal states of feeling and expression. Are there tears? It becomes a sentimentality. And it's a negation theology or selective antinomianism, negation theology, perhaps is easier to understand. Um, it's not about what you do, because doing isn't important. It's what, how you feel and what you think, that's important. So our desire to be worshiping people and to be holy, the way that we're holy is not to do things, it's to not do things. So holiness, in the absence of good liturgy, becomes what you don't do. Well, I don't do this that makes me holy, and I don't do that, that makes me holy. If you don't do X, Y, and Z, then you're actually, in that kind of liturgy, you're free to do whatever you want and free from God himself. Jesus replied in Matthew 15, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their their teachings are but rules taught by men. Closing, our form of worship matters to God. Not only what we teach, but what we do when we teach it matters to God. The Second Baptist London Confession of 1689 twenty two one reads this the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will, that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or in any way not prescribed by the Holy Scriptures. You say, Well what about earnesty and sincerity? Isn't it worship in spirit and in truth? Yes, that's important. But God has directed us how we ought to worship. Worship shapes our love. In closing, just looking at Romans 12, Paul appeals in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is a practical portion of, of Romans. Then what he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. What he's saying in the negative is be conformed to the pattern of heaven. Be conformed to the worship of God. That's, that's That statement and it's positive. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What do we see here? Liturgy and knowledge working together. And then we see wisdom. That by testing, you may be able to discern what the will of God is. It's good, acceptable, and perfect. And then it talks later, you can explore the passage itself, all the things that come out of it, all the good works. And here we have, even in Romans 12, we have the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2 in the theology of Paul. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And so we think we're not primarily thinking beings, we're desiring beings. We're liturgical beings, worshiping beings. This means that the key influences on who we are and how we live operate subconsciously under the hood of our lives. We're constantly drawn towards some vision of the world, how it should be by our love and that vision. But if our love is so influential, what is it that influences our love? The answer is habit. Habit. Your love is a kind of automatic thing. Love is learned subconsciously. Christian worship is the imagination station. What we do on Sunday morning recalibrates our hearts towards God. God created us to love. Meeting with the body of Christ, we practice the habits that immerse us in the God storyline of the world. They invite us to make that narrative our very own Monday through Saturday. Our definition of a human informs the practices of discipleship. Somehow we've separated discipleship from what we do on Sunday morning. This is discipleship. If we assume that people are always on, who think through every action and make conscious decisions before doing anything, then our discipleship will simply focus on changing how we think. Discipleship under this model becomes a matter of mere information transfer which we have discovered by experience, does not work. We want people to know more about Jesus, to know more about themselves, and to become more conscious about their motivations and their actions. And so the goal of discipleship is becoming more like Christ. We can't stop there. We, If we want ourselves and others to become more joyful and more patient, more gentle and self-controlled, then we have to recognize that this kind of person isn't someone who stops and consciously decides at every opportunity there's someone who is kind or that there's someone who is loving this this kind of person is habitually kind period in other words becoming like Christ means becoming a different sort of person it means developing a Christ-like subconscious virtues that drive us without even thinking about it and how do you train a Loving being to become more like Christ, two things. We need to become more aware of the fact that what we love may not be what we think we love. We, we do need to get to thinking. It's, it's important. But the second thing is that we need to retrain our loves. That's what we're going to do on Sunday morning. Retrain our loves. That's the purpose of why we're meeting. Retraining our loves... Having stopped to think, we must not stop thinking. Our loves are expressed and formed by the habit practices, our liturgy we undertake. We need habit practices that point our hearts to God. And our habits don't start and end on Sunday morning. The purpose is that you would think and form habits here so that you will think and form habits wherever you go. Lord, forgive me for taking so much time for perhaps not being as clear as your word is clear. But I pray that you would use uh, these meager words uh, to set us on a course of reconnection. One that will form and shape and strengthen us as individuals, as families, and as a church. And so we pray your blessing as we seek to honor you with this time that we have, this precious, wonderful time that we have every Sunday morning in worship of you. And we pray that the worship of you, um, even as the Ten Commandments came downhill and corrected the confusion of God's people, that your law and your grace would flow freely, even as the waters flow from the temple that you describe even to all the earth that the gospel, the goodness of God, might lovingly correct and instruct and reprove as we reenact, not just on Sunday, but daily, the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.